Welcome everybody once again to Rodin Radio, episode 9, with my very good friend here. But before I introduce her, uh, I want to thank the people that have been ordering uh, uh, or live streaming the, should I say, the documentary, the documixery, actually. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, no complaints. I've received nothing but praise and people are really, really enjoying it. Uh, it's been very educational from what many people have uh, told me. Well, what we set out to do was uh, do a documentary, which we call a documixery, about Steve Yano, the swamp meat vendor from the city of Whittier, a Japanese uh, man, a good friend of mine, an uh, older brother, and a father figure, if you will. And uh, I didn't want his name to get lost in West Coast hip-hop history, so I set out to do this documixery. And for those that, uh, and it's finally out, honestly, I'm thankful that it is, for those that uh, have ordered it and you have unlimited streaming, uh, many of you guys have uh, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I get all the positive feedback. I haven't gotten not one negative feedback yet. Everybody really, really enjoys it. Somebody just asked me, why did it take so long? Because I wanted to make sure that it was done right and that everybody would enjoy. I had one guy tell me this. He said, I know it was three hours long. He said, but I want it more. And honestly, that's like my pay. So once again, uh, it's barely the third day that it's been out. It was released Monday and it's available now at DocuMixery.com. Once again, I just want to say that uh, many people have been DMing me and uh, messaging me on Facebook. And uh, please do not, do not DM me or message me on Facebook asking me to come on the show or listen to my music. I don't listen or read those uh, um, messages. And I'll tell you why, because I get so many. I get so many. There is a uh, Rhodium Radio Gmail that you can uh, uh, email all your suggestions, your comments. If you want to see somebody interviewed here, uh, uh, email us. Email us your music. I do not listen to music. So please, I'm trying to be nice. Do not send me your music through DM or through uh, uh, Facebook Messenger. I don't read those messages. Rhodium Radio at Gmail. Send it all there and we'll get to it uh, in a timely manner and get back to you as well. So without further ado, I want to introduce someone that I've been knowing since I've been a teenager. I met her through Steve Yanomi, rest in peace. And um, we have been friends for the longest and I'm thankful to have friends. You know, I, I've said it once before that uh, I can count on my friends in one hand and have fingers left over and she's one of them. Now, for all you people who may not know who she is before I introduce her, I always like to say, if you don't know who Violet Brown is, you don't belong in this music industry. That's just me. 
Without further ado, the godmother, the godmother of hip hop, Violet Brown, thank you for coming. I'm excited to be here. Well, I was excited. I, I actually even sat down with John and I was like, you know what, dude? There is so much to cover with her. There's so much history because this is a woman that has been there since the beginning of hip hop. Since the beginning. Mm -hmm. So there's so much that I wanted to cover and so much that I wanted to ask. But just like hip hop had a beginning, Violet had a beginning. So my question to you starts, where is Violet Brown from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? I was born in Inglehood, Inglewood, California. Uh, and I was not in Inglewood for very long. We moved out to Lawndale. So I went uh, to Lawndale schools, Lawndale High School, all of that. Um, I always collected records as a kid. Uh, from the time I was about five years old, I loved music and I started collecting singles. Every little penny that I would get, I would go buy more singles all the time. My, uh, my dad was a drinker. My mom would say, hey, go to the store with your dad so he won't get nothing to drink. So I would go with him to the store. He would say, hey, uh, you want some records? And I would go, yeah. He would, here, take this. And so we would go to little uh, places, Clark's Drug, places like that, because they had a record record department in there. Yes. So I would go out, buy the records there, come home with all these new records. My mom would say, did you get anything to drink? And I'd say, yeah, and I got my records. <laughs> Every wow. time that would wow. happen. But I uh, collected these, uh, you know, avid record collector singles mainly and uh up until about the time i was 12 years old i had tons of records at this point and uh, i started going to the rhodium swap meet too as a kid and before we get there okay what elementary school did you attend uh billy mitchell in billy lawndale mitchell. what junior high school uh jane adams jane adams high school now Lawndale. 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 Any sports in high school? Uh, softball, but I was so involved in, I was very involved in theater, the plays. Uh, I was in a band. I played uh, guitar in a band, uh, sang in a band. So I did that. Uh, but mm. it, it was all about my record collection. Uh, right, right. From junior high all through high school, if there was a dance or a party, it was my records that were being played, you know. You know, you said since you were five years old, you've been collecting records. Now, mm -hmm. with these albums, 12 inches, 45s? 45s. 45. Now, Started as. Now, what would a 45 have gone for back then? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, back in the day, you could buy these, um, they were little packages of singles. And okay. often you didn't know what was in them. Ten, a pack of 10 for a dollar. So, wow. and sometimes there would be great ones in there and sometimes some weird stuff too. But I don't remember exactly uh, what one single costs, but it, it had to be super cheap because albums, I think, were two ninety nine or something like that wow, back in the day. Wow. I, I ran a record. I, uh, later on, I was running a, a warehouse record store and painted on the window at the time was two ninety six for albums. Two ninety six. Yeah. You would have happened to have uh, one of those records with the with the, with the price tag that on it. Do, do you? Probably somewhere in my collection. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember at all, maybe not your first record, but maybe some of the records that you first started buying, maybe when you were five, Ooh. six, seven, eight years old? Uh, a guy named Shorty Long, Function at the Junction. Um, 
the twist, all those kind right, of records. Right. You know, um, I grew up on uh, my my parents' uh, best friends was a black family who lived uh, in Compton. And every summer I would spend my summers with them. So I would always come back knowing all of the music, all the stuff that they were listening to. And that was all very important to me, all those kind of songs. Right. So, uh, you know, a lot of James Brown, stuff like that. You know? so, so would you say your influence and music selection when you bought records came from that family? A lot of it came from that family, yeah. Okay. See, my dad, he played a lot of 45s, a lot of 78 records, uh -huh. uh, uh, a lot of albums, mostly Spanish. And then when he did play some English, it would be like Chubby Checkers. Uh, it would be a, a Beach Boys, yep. stuff like that, you know. And so I really saw my dad play records because mm -hmm. we used to have that big old big old stereo, you know. Yeah. So I... I think I still remember as a kid the first song that I ever heard him play. He took it out of the forty-five sleeve and he put it on. It was the Monster Mash, you know. And and as a little kid, you know, I'm hearing all these creepy sounds, so I'm envisioning it like, what the hell is that? But uh, my first record that I ever received, uh, it was I was about eleven years old, and it was a Kiss uh, album. It was um, I'm trying to Love Gun album. Okay. I, I just loved Kiss. Uh, um, they had the makeup and everything. They kind yeah. of look like Mexican wrestlers. So I, uh, I was drawn to that. But, uh, now I was 11 years old. You were five. Wow. Well, what do you think it was, Violet, that just drew you to music that you felt I got to well, buy records? My mom was always into music. She played stand up bass and she played on a show sometimes called Town Hall Party, which was kind oh. of more like country music. Yes. So I grew up uh, with a l listening to a lot of that. I think I really rebelled against it, you know, and mm. uh, because there was just so much of it, you know. And so I started listening to other things. And then when I became close with this family, uh, big shout out there to uh, Gloria and Rufus McClendon. I would love to find them to this day. So if anybody knows them, the McClendons from Compton, I'm looking for them. But, um, you know, uh, they, I would always come back from the summer. I would know all the new dances. I would have all the new music. You know, I would know what was up. And uh, I just really loved it so much because there, there was a lot of music going on in that family, you know. And so, um, you know, it just really got me to collecting more and more singles. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, around what time, because you had mentioned earlier that, um, there were school dances, if I'm correct, and they were using your records. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Were these like noon dances, after school oh, dances? Yeah, after school dances. Um, and then if anybody had like a little house party, birthday parties, things like that, they always knew that they could call on me that I would have the records, you know. Wow. And so it was just playing records. It wasn't like spinning, you know, right, right. mixing, just playing the records. But, you know, if you know music and you know what makes people move, even if you're not spinning the records, if it's the, I mean, if you're not mixing, you're just playing the record, at least, you know, you were playing good stuff and people would get up and dance and have a good time. Yes, so, yes. And that, that kind of led me later on to DJing and all that too. Yeah. So. Now, before we get to your DJing, let me share with you this. And um, my brother, I only had a few records, but this is, we were buying them from, Steve Yano uh, at the Vermont Swamp Meet mm -hmm. uh, when it was across the street from Ascot. Mm -hmm. And um, my brother would always buy records. So one day at my junior high school, they announced that they were looking for a DJ to DJ noon dances. I was in eighth grade at the time. I was probably about 12 years old. 
I had never DJed before, I'll be honest with you, but I knew what people liked to dance to because my brother DJing at a club. Mm -hmm. So I, I just went up to him and I said, yeah, I know how to DJ. And I lied, you know, and he said, uh, well, this is our equipment. He had a one turntable, a big old mixer with a round fader mm -hmm. and a cassette deck. So right away I thought, okay, all my records, I got to transfer them to cassette and I take my set of records. So when this song ends, I'll play this one. Put, put my, uh, uh, plug the, the headphones into this, cue up the cassette deck, and then press stop and then start this one again. So that was my first noon dance. And to be quite honest with you, I was nervous as hell. Do you still remember when you played in front of people? Yes. And my experience was really out there because um, uh, later on, I was working for a company called Nehi Record Distributors. Okay. And we actually uh, sold uh, records to, we were the distributor for all the big uh, record stores, chains. Wow. There used to be little uh, chain stores, White Front, Zodis, all those kind of Zodis. companies that uh, they had, and Sears, May Company, they all had record uh, departments. Yes. And they would come and buy their records from knee-high record distributors, and I worked for them. So, uh, and, and I was their singles buyer, and uh, we also had a, a chain called Peaches Records that okay. I bought for them as well. So I was supplying records to all these different places all around the country, throughout the country, and it was all genres. So I had to know like everything. I had to know the hot country records that was happening in Texas, the, you know, uh, blues, you know, anything that was going on, I had to be on top of it. Yes. So yes. I always got a lot of promos from all the record labels. So at this point, I had tons and I still loved singles and singles were still important back then. So uh, one day I was coming home uh, from work and I'm coming up in LA here, Stalker and La Brea. I'm coming up uh, La Brea near Stalker yes. and I get a flat tire. So, and, and the place where I was working was on Jefferson. So I, um, my, I pull over and there wasn't cell phones and things like that at the time. Right. So I get out of the car and I look, where can I go use a phone? And I see a bar on the corner. It looks like a bar. So I go up and I go in, I said, Hey, can I use your phone? You know, my car broke down and, but I didn't want to leave my records in the car. So I brought the case with me. I was carrying it. Right. So the guy goes, uh, yeah, you can use a phone. And you know, he was African American and, um, uh, a few other people in there were in there and, uh, it was all black. And so, uh, they're looking at me and they go, what's in that box? And I go, Oh, it's records. And they go, records? And I go, yeah. And he goes, let me see. So I opened it up and he's going, wow, you have a lot of records. He goes, can I look at through them? And I said, sure. He goes, how come you have so many records? And I go, well, I said, I'm a buyer for this place. And I go, I was just taking them home with me. And I said, I get a lot of promos from record labels. He goes, you got all kinds of new stuff here. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, what's this? And he was pulling out things. I go, oh, that'll be out like in a month or so wow. or whatever. And he goes, wow, I can't believe you, you have all this stuff. Yes. So he goes, you should bring your records and come back here at night. And I said, why, why, what go, what happens here at night? And it looked like a, like a bar, a club or right. whatever. He goes, he goes, we, we have dancing here at night. You should bring these records. He goes, you have, you have all kinds of records that we would want to hear. So I said, well, maybe I'll do that sometime. And he goes, no, really, you need to come back. So my brother came, fixed the tire, took off, but I kept thinking about that place and I didn't know anything about it. It was called the summit. I found okay. out later and it was right at the top of St Stalker and La Brea. 
And so I went back there one night on a weekend and I knew the guy and he was the manager or owner, I think at the time. So um, I went in and there was not one white person in the whole place. And uh, they're looking at me and he, and he goes, you got to come up here to the DJ booth. So he takes me up introduces me to the DJ and he had told me to bring my records so I brought records with right. me so we go up in the DJ booth and the guy goes oh uh, he goes let me see what you got and he goes wow so that was the first time that I was ever in a DJ booth with somebody looking out on the dance floor and believe you me they were like staring at me like what the hell what is she doing here or whatever so of course yeah so uh he started saying, you know, he, he gave my name out. He said she brought in some records tonight, that sort of thing. And they saw, I guess, that I was pretty cool. I had good music because I really had some good stuff that yes, I brought yes. there. So I went back there a few more times. I was watching him DJ, and then I kind of wanted to do it myself, you know. Now, if you can remember, because to me, for DJs and DJ fans out there, if you can remember, what kind of setup that they have? Did they have two turntables and a mixer? It was two turntables and a mixer. Do you yeah. remember what time? No, but I know it was some old janky shit. I mean, really. Right, so, right. Yeah. No, because I remember my first pair of turntables. I remember I dropped a needle and it would skip like this. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. So, but that's that's what we yeah, had. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've been in DJ booths where, yeah, you just couldn't move because it was going to skip, you know. And I've yes. been on things where I had to put coins on the thing you know to yes. lay it down a little bit yes. all of that you know and you said something that, that to me stood out because you said i brought my records we had to take our records because somebody would steal them or if they were in the heat they would war yes they would war and that's why i had them with me and this generation of younger djs possibly didn't know that or wouldn't know that because they possibly never had records everything's been downloads you right know? so and then you said do you guys have a phone yeah. Today, everybody has a phone. So yeah. you brought back a lot of memories, especially when you said Zodis, because Zodis was actually like my second job. My first job was working with Steve at, at 11, and then I was a teenager working at Zodis. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, I, I was a huge record collector. Uh, I ended up, and I almost even feel bad announcing this, but a, a few years ago, I sold all my records. Oh, wow. So, uh, somebody offered me the right price. And uh, he literally begged me. At first, he offered me 10, and then he went up 11, 12, you know, 1,000. And then I just said, no, I, I can't. And then it went up to 15, and he had a cash. Wow. So I thought long and hard about it, and I said, come back tomorrow. And if he's listening, he'll probably get mad at me because I cherry-picked some stuff. Mm -hmm. And I took him out, and I said, take him on. And he was taking him back to Japan. Wow. So, but, you know, and it's funny because I'm thinking to myself, okay, I got Steve Yano. I can always get his record collection. Steve's like, hell no, I ain't selling mine. Yeah. You know, but Steve, Steve was the shit, man. There comes a time where you just don't have the space anymore. I know. And you don't want to pay storage anymore or that sort of thing. Well, so. well I, I had them all up against this wall. You know, all up against these ones, they were real high, yeah. uh, over 60 crates, you know, easy. And I, I knew where everything was, my classic rock, my yeah. you know, my oldies, everything, you know. But after a while, I was like, you know what? I, I'll tell you what I did take out. I took out my ultimate breaks and beats. That's what I took. And I, and I still have them. Yeah. So uh, so I still have those. Um, now, Knee High Records, was there, did you have a job before that at any time? Uh, yes, I did. Um, well, 
first of all, it was at the rhodium swap meet when I was 12 years old. Wow. I, uh, I would um, hang out at the swap meet because my parents sold stuff out there and I was running around to all the different booths and everything. And there was a guy that sold four and eight track tapes. So this is before cassettes. Right. There was four and eight track tapes. Wow. And uh, I asked them if I could work for them if they needed any help because all the kids would run around to the different booths at the swap meet and say you need any help you need any help yes so i asked these people you need any help and they're looking at me and i said i really know music and they go what and i was like yeah i know i really know music i and i want to work yes so they said okay uh next weekend get here at 6 a.m in the morning so i said okay so i went there 6 a.m in the morning I worked on a Saturday. They told me to come back on the Sunday. I think I was there from 6 to like 4.30 or something when they tore down. I did that like several weekends in a row. And I was telling them uh, some of the hot stuff. Because back, back then, it wasn't illegal to straight up copy an album. So they would uh, copy on 4 or 8 track a Beatles album or wow. James Brown or whatever. It was not illegal, I think, until like 72. Wow. So, um, and they were making uh, compilations. So they were uh, tape one, two, you know, numbered like right. that. So I started telling them the songs to put on their compilations. And they were putting them on, and then they started selling really well. And they were selling, they were wholesaling to all these different uh swap meet people all Mom over the Puff. country yeah, yeah was was buying from them i didn't know this at the time i thought they just had a little store because they had a little store in lawndale too okay which i found out about later and then they had the swap meet thing that was going on so um i started telling them which ones to put on they sold really well and then during the week they would say hey uh after school do you want to come over to carson to where we live and you know and work with us over there a little bit so I said, okay. So I go over to this house in, in Carson, and it had a lot of bedrooms, no beds in it. It was all recording equipment, like wow. everywhere. They were making these tapes, sending them out, you know, like big time. I didn't even know how big this uh, business was wow. that they had. And they were paying me 20 bucks a day <laughs> at the swap meet, and I felt that I was rich, you know. Uh, back then. I was 12 years old, you yes. know, and I have a job. So I did that all the way up until I was 15 years old. So I'd been with them for three years every weekend. And they said, they finally said, hey, our business is really good. We want to get rid of our little store in Lawndale. And it was called RNS Tape Town. That was the name of it. And they said, we want to get rid of it. Why don't you take it over? And then you just sell, you just pay us at the end of the week for any of the tapes that you sold, like on consignment. Now, Ara, how old were you around this time now? 12, 12 to 15. And they wanted you to run it? Yeah, they gave me the store. I was, I was 15 when I took over the store and I was still in high school. Okay, and let, I, let me stop you right there because I have to say something. See, today we have things on social media that say GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. See, back then that was the original GoFundMe. You would go, do you guys need any help? Mm -hmm. Okay. I hope I'm wrong, but kids today don't really do that. Okay. No. Then our social media was the swamp meet. Right. We didn't have, you know, MySpace, Twitter, or whatever. Right. You know, today kids can DM, tweet, you know, message, poke, uh, whatever, but can't hold a conversation. Right. That's why I miss those days. By yeah. The way. 
Yeah. I, that's why I miss those days. Yeah. So you take over the store. So I take over the store, and I was always a pretty popular kid in school because I had all the records for the parties, and I was in a <laughs> band, and I was in the plays and things like that. So I had like a built-in, you know, customers, audience that, you know, once I told them, hey, I have this store now, you know, flyers here to the kids at school, come come to my store, which I had to open after I got out of school. So it didn't open up to like three or four in the afternoon. And then I would be in there to like eight o'clock at night or something. Um, so all the kids started coming. And I remember it was only my second week of being open. And after all the bills were paid, the consignment was paid for them for the week and everything, I had made $800. And mind you, this store, the rent back then was $50 a month. $50 a month. It was a little hole in the wall. And, you know, I don't know how many square feet, maybe like four or 500 square feet or yes. something. But uh, $50 a month. And I started making all this money, you know, because all the kids would come. Then I started going, okay, well, on Friday nights, we should do jam sessions in here. People can bring their instruments and things like that and play. So I was doing things like that, you know, to draw more attention. The store started making more money, more money, more money. And uh, I started begging my mom, please, you know, I, I really need to like quit high school because, you know, I'm making so much money. She was like, you're not quitting high school, you right, know? And right. I said, I'm making so much money. You know, I thought I was rich, you know? Right, right. Well, it kind of was a lot of money back then yes. for, you know, to have week after week going 800, 1,000, you know, whatever That's it was. That's a hell of a lot of you money. You know, so I was like, please you know and so she i i don't know how i conned her into this but she let me quit high school so then i just did the store uh -huh. and seven days a week pretty much doing the store staying open late all of that and then when i became 18 it, they cut off the you couldn't sell those types of tapes anymore it oh. was copyright laws were being like what really, we would call bootlegs yes I guess. okay yeah it was basically bootlegs okay you know and then it became a crackdown so we had to get rid of the tapes i couldn't sell those types of tapes anymore so i uh -huh. started investing in um you know buying you know product that was legal or whatever yes yes um so of course, a lot of the business went away with music, but I didn't want to get rid of my store. So back in the day, the thing that was really popular was head shops. So I started in, I had already started investing in head shop gear, you know, pipes, posters, lights, like black lights, strobe lights, tie dye shirts, you know, right. candles, all that kind of hippie shit, you know. And so um, that um, started doing well. That portion of the business and I remember the shop came open next door and it was going to be another $50 for this little place next door right. so I rented that one and then we built like a light showroom in between the two stores where you would go in and it would be all the lights and posters and things like that right and so when the music shop shut down we just had the head shop going and so my mom would come in there sometimes and work with me and it was called Mrs. Natural's Nickel Bag. And the reason why we called it oh. Mrs. Natural, because Mr. Natural, the keep on trucking dude from our <laughs> crumb comics was the big thing and the zigzag yes. man and all that. So I had a guy from uh, North High School come and paint the outside of my store and he did all the zap comic characters, 
uh, zigzag man, keep on trucking dude. It was all painted on the outside of the store. So just to ask, do you still have any possibly any pictures of yeah, that? Yeah, I do. Oh wow. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Wow. So um yeah, and um when we take a break, I'll bring in that magazine too. Because yes, there might yes. be something in there with it. But uh that store, you know, was doing really well with the head shop stuff and not so much music anymore, but I still wanted to work in music. So I had my mom run the head shop and I said, I'm gonna go get a job in music. So I went to the popular record store at the time. It was called Wallach's Music City. Okay. And they were the big record chain before Tower Records. And uh, they had in stores, like the Beatles would come and shop in their store. If a big celebrity was in town, they would come and shop at Wallach's Music City, especially the one in Hollywood, it, it, right. Hollywood and Vine. It was like a big uh You didn't happen to landmark. catch the Beatles when they got there, did you? No, no. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, I kept going to this record store asking the manager if I could get a job there. And he would say, I don't hire kids. And I said, I've already had my own record store. I know the music. And he goes, I'm sorry, but I don't hire kids. And I was about 18 maybe at that yeah. time. And he called that a kid, you know, so, and he wouldn't really give me the time of day. He said, no, no, or whatever, right. kind of pushing me away. And so I finally said to him, I go, you want to play some music trivia? And he was wow. like, he was like, yeah, let's go for it. And so then we started like, you know, going back and forth, going back and forth. And he saw that I really knew what I was talking about, about records. And so he put me on in the store. Wow. So I was with them about a year and I was doing really well. He gave me the 45, the singles department. I was doing really well. And the main office caught wind of me. So they came down and got to know me. And after one year, they took me, um, uh, the distributor took me to uh, Nehi Record Distributors to buy for that distribution company. So then I was buying for everybody. We're going to get back to that. I want you to, I want to press pause like a cassette right there. We're going to take a little break. Okay. Because so far, we've been knowing each other for a long time, Violet, but when I talk to you, it's always an honor and a pleasure, and I've just been blown away because I love your story. Ah. So, so you guys, uh, once again, please uh, text somebody, call somebody, beep somebody. Uh, um, we got the godmother of hip-hop here in the building rhodium radio once again we're going to go to a commercial we'll be back in about 10 minutes please call somebody let them know that violet brown is here and we're going to continue this conversation in a moment thank everybody that has logged in and um we got more for you guys so thank you once again everybody thank you for tuning in uh we, we are having an awesome awesome uh conversation here you know i created this uh platform here inspired by Steve Yano at the Rodin Swami, how he, at his stand, give everybody a voice, everybody a platform. And what we do here is not so much of an interview, but it's a more of a conversation that uh, uh, the audience can learn and, and glean from what we are, are sharing here, especially when it uh, comes to uh, uh, an awesome woman uh, like Violet Brown, the godmother of hip hop, and we are back with her. Once again, thank you, Violet, for being here. It is truly an honor and a pleasure. Uh, we've been knowing each other for years, but every time I get together with you, I am always learning something because I want to learn. You know, uh, uh, one of the things that I tell a lot of these younger generations, 
you, you never arrive at learning. You got to always continue, yeah, continue to learn. To, uh, uh, learn from those that have already been through the door, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know. So now you you are um, distributed. If I'm correct. Yep. Okay. And uh, at what point? How soon after that did you start being possibly a consultant for record labels? Well, after leaving Nehi Record Distributors, I actually went to Warehouse Music. And okay. I went, I uh, because it was located in the South Bay, I heard there was a record uh, job, uh-huh. uh, a company in the South Bay where I lived. And I was going kind of far from the South Bay to Jefferson to this job. So uh, I went to check out uh it was warehouse entertainment it was called uh, integrity entertainment was the main office so i went in there and uh, got a job with them and they sent me directly into one of their stores they said oh you want to start okay uh you can go to the store it's right down the road not too far it was in long beach where they sent me so they said you can be the assistant manager and i was like okay i don't know anything about your stores or anything yet other than the fact i had bought a record at a warehouse store years ago uh previous and i really didn't like the chain that much but i was like okay i'll go check it out or whatever so i went and i worked in this store for a while and then i just kept moving through the ranks to uh, eventually managing the number one store in the chain then managing the number one urban store at la brea and rodeo coming into the main office as an urban music buyer where uh, I had a lot of success in that position, you know, because yes. I was picking the music on, that would go on the shelves of all of our stores. And we were a really good chain when it came to urban music. And uh, I started doing things like a, a block party in the back of our store at La Brea and Rodeo, uh, where in June, Black Music Month, back then it really was called Black Music Month, and it yes. was called Black Music. On the radio, it was called Black Music uh bre was black radio you know magazines and all that so um it wouldn't happen in in this day and time but anyway um so i started doing these um like block parties we called them in the back of the parking lot i went out i handpicked vendors to come and sell stuff i didn't charge them to sell their stuff but i wanted to handpick and choose the right ones that i wanted so they would come set up a little booth sell their stuff i set up stages and i would have people perform so the record labels would bring whoever the hot artists were at the time you know a lot of big artists came and performed who didn't name us a few um Tina Marie, um, uh, Ice T, uh, wow. you know, NWA would come through, um, Jodeci. Um, you, you know what this reminds me of? Almost like a Beats Swap Meet. Are you familiar with the yeah, Beats? Yeah, yeah. That's what, kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, we had like whoever was hot at the time, they would come through that year, you know, and I would have game booths for the kids in the neighborhood. It was all free. And at first they said, oh, this can't happen here because they across the street from my store was an area that they called the jungle. So over there, you know, was a lot of stuff happening over there, a lot of drugs being sold, all that over there, you know. So they were really worried about something being free, you know, and with all these rappers and things like that, tone Loke, you know, uh, you know, all these different rappers were coming through, uh, Young right. MC, all that. And so, um, 
you know, we did that like every single June. And then I started doing rap competitions. So we were doing, um, you know, people would submit tapes. I would choose the top 10 and then they would perform live. And I remember one time in the back parking lot, my uh, panel who was judging the top 10, yes. it was Ice-T, Tone Loke, uh, Eazy-E, uh, MC Hammer, uh, Greg Mack from K-Day, K -Day, yes. uh, Russ Parr, and... From Bobby Jimmy? Yes. And there was one other big person I just can't remember right now, but these were the judges that were there, you know, judging. And... Uh, and they were sitting right at a table where any kid in the neighborhood could just see their favorite rap star right there, you know? Wow. Yeah. Now, now just to ask, since I'm a collector, would you happen to have pictures or video of any of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I had a guy that used to film my videos and, uh, he, his name is Tim Story, so he does all big films now. He's right. winning awards, like gigantic films, and he's a big director now, you know, but he used to come and film, you know, the the day, pretty much. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, now, I'm going to ask you something. I want to get, we're going to back up a little bit to the origins, or should I say the beginning of hip-hop. Mm -hmm. When hip-hop first started taking off, since you were in the industry what were some of the things that were going around? I'll tell you what uh, uh, my brothers would say when hip hop first started to come up. Of course, I first, the first song that I heard was Sugar Hill Gang. Uh -huh. And then I heard Blondie rap on Rapture. Yeah. And my brothers, because uh, I got five older brothers, they always say, oh, it's a fad. It's, it's going to fade out. You know, uh, it, it's only in for a little bit. You know, and that's what they all used to say. Yeah. But I loved it. I truly, truly loved it. I, I almost felt like, okay, this is music for me now, you know, youngsters, you yeah. know. What were the, some of the some of the things that you were hearing when hip-hop first started to bloom? Uh, a fad, uh, the same kind of stuff. It wouldn't be around. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't real music. Yeah. You know, there wasn't any talent. There wasn't any real talent. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of the R&B type people, you know, just absolutely hated it. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, you know, oh, it's only going to be around. Oh, an another year and it's gone. Yeah. You know, here we are, what, 45 or more years later. Yeah. And, and people are still saying just it's as big as ever. Yes. Yeah. Around know, the world. Around the world, everywhere. And in pop culture everywhere, you know, hip hop, yes. you see it in clothing, you see it in art, you see it on TV, you see it, uh, sitcoms, you know, every, everything, everything you yes. know, you even got athletes rapping. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, that was not a great idea. By yeah. the way. <laughs> now, what, if anything, would you say, because I have a record that I, I can say, I mean, hip hop obviously changed my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. but and mine. What, what, what was that one song? Maybe that one artist that you heard and you said, oh, shit, that, that's my shit right there. Planet Rock. Say it again one more time. Planet Rock. Planet Rock. Yes. Do you remember where you were when you first heard it? Ah. Uh, you know what? I don't remember where I was when I first heard it. Wow. But I know that when I heard it, time stopped and I was like, I got to get that record. Yes. I got to have that record. Yes. And I was working for Warehouse Records 
but we didn't have that record. And I was like, where is this record? How do I get this record? And uh, I maybe it was on a, I don't know if it was on K-Day that I heard it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but I just remember hearing it and losing my mind over it. I had to have it. So I started calling around everywhere trying to find this record. I was like, well, maybe VIP has it. Let me call VIP. Let me find this record. And then, uh, of course, uh, Steve Yano. Yeah. Um, I knew that he would have that record. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Here's my story. Uh, Steve's already taken me to Audio Achievements where NWA is recording. Yeah. That was right uh, in Torrance, right where Warehouse was. So, I would run into them at the Mexican restaurant. La Capilla. Yeah. La Capilla. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Well, one day, I couldn't go that day. And uh, they were finishing mixing it down. Mm -hmm. Okay. My mom didn't let me go. I had a very strict uh, Mexican mother that, shit, if I went to the liquor store, I better hurry up or you better go with somebody type of deal. And I remember um, I slept in the living room because I had shared shared the room where like three other brothers and there was only two beds. Mm -hmm. uh, our house was like ghetto as fuck. Seriously, one of our windows was broken and there was a hole in one of them. Okay, so we would just put a piece of cardboard. <laughs> so my mom and my dad were asleep and I had my boom box and some old beat up ass headphones that you kind of had to make so you could hear both, you know, headphones. Mm -hmm. So I'm laying there and I'm waiting on Steve to come. I said, don't call me, you'll wake up my whole family. So he finally pulls up and I see the van pull up. He comes up and I take out that piece of cardboard and he sticks his hand through the broken window and he goes, here you go. He said, don't dub that tape for nobody. And I said, okay. So he left. I put the cassette in the boom box, put the headphones in, put them on. I grabbed my furry Mexican blanket and I pressed play. And it was the NWA Straight Outta Compton album and it changed my life, man. Wow. It, honestly, it, it, it changed my life. It was a game changer. Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and that's why I said, somebody asked, what's, what's one of your favorite albums of all time? I said that one because it changed me and that, mu that music, that album changed everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and then about, a, uh, I think a couple of months later, because they were released the same year, uh, Easy E's album came out. And in the intro, as soon as I heard him go, Ooh, I was like, oh, shit, that shit's hard. Yeah. You know, and then when I heard Easy, easily I approached the microphone. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I get, I get the chills right now just talking well, about it. You know, as a DJ, because I had started DJing in clubs, as we talked about earlier. Yes. And, you know, if you're DJing in clubs and the weekend comes, if you don't have the new shit, you, you ain't shit. You, you got to have it. You know, so everybody would hit up Steve Yano for the new 12-inch singles. Like, I could get a lot of that stuff being a buyer. Right. But there was a lot of stuff that came out of New York and things like that that Steve was able to get, yes. you know, that we got later as buyers or whatever, maybe a month later or something, I was able to yes. get it in my stores, but Steve had the hot stuff. And everybody knew that Steve had this stuff. And Dre was one of those people that knew that you had to go there and get yes. that stuff. So as soon as he would open up in the morning at the swap meet, the rhodium, back to the rhodium again, many years later, uh, DJs would be there and because Steve only had a certain amount of these 12 inches like yes. maybe he had 20 maybe he had 10 you know right. and if you were the top if you were the first 10 or 20 there you could grab it you know yes. and 
they were actually spinning some of the stuff so you could hear it there too. Yes. You could hear the new stuff, which old DJ stores, you could always hear, you know, whatever it was right. in the store. And he did that there. So uh, Dre was one of those DJs and probably quick too, probably. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if he was or not, but definitely, uh, you know, Dre. And uh, Steve started making those mixtapes. Yes, yes. That's what I want to get to. Uh, um, do you remember... Um, who you met first? Did you meet Eric Easy E or Dre first, or did you meet them together? I met Eric first. Okay, and and that was where uh, there at the Rhodium. At the Rhodium. At the Rhodium. Same place that, that I met. I met him yeah. in 1987, mm -hmm. and uh, I just happened to walk up, and that's that's where I I met Dre for the first time. Uh, Easy and Jinx. Jinx mm -hmm. was like 17 years old, mm -hmm. you know. And then from there, that's when I began to build a relationship. Later on, I come to find out that when I was going to Jinx's house, that's when Dre had just moved in, uh, as they showed in the movie, mm -hmm. you know. And I was talking to Jinx not too long when I asked him, hey, man, what year was that? He goes, oh, that was 87. And I was like, that was the same damn year, you know. Yeah. But um, I'll tell you what, one thing that I, I've shared before about Dre, whenever I would go to Jinx's house, that I never saw him hung, hanging around, drinking a 40, watching TV. I always saw him either on the phone, people were coming to see him, he was always leaving. It was almost like he was always making moves, yeah. you know? So, um, now you meet Easy, uh, Dre eventually. Um, what was your relationship with them? Because obviously it was tight. Your name was on the albums, mm -hmm. you know? Um, if any, did you have any type well, of input? They... Um you know, in talking to them, they knew that I was working in music uh -huh. and I was a buyer and stuff like that. But the way that really NWA was presented to me, like I knew that he was doing the MC, he was MC on the tapes. Right. And, and there was a single that came out that Greg Mack was involved with radio and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, but a little bit later, um, Priority Records, the owner, one of the owners, Mark Cerami, uh, who I had somewhat of a relationship with uh -huh. because of, you know, being a buyer at Warehouse, he uh, would call me and ask me questions about certain things. And they were known, their claim to fame at that point, their big record was a remake of I Heard It Through the Grapevine with the, the California Raisins. It was oh, in wow. a cartoon. Uh, it was on a commercial on TV. Right. And so they made a record of that. And then suddenly it was this big thing on the radio, kind of like, um, you know, uh, it was a, like a gimmick type thing. Right, right. But it started selling. So he had said to me, oh, we have this record. And he goes, but it's scare it kind of scares me to death. He goes, it's really kind of hardcore. He goes, I don't know. I don't know if, if we should do this or whatever. And so he had asked me about it and I already kind of knew about them. Right. So I said, yes, absolutely. You should do this, you know, and yes. he was really nervous about it because it was a lot of controversy behind the, the content of the record yes, and yes. stuff. So he was nervous as hell to put it out. But I was telling him, man, this is going to sell. This is going to sell. It's going to be big. Believe me, yes. whatever. So he always says, when you uh, talk to anybody about jobs or whatever on your resume, put down that you were the one that was that uh, was responsible for bringing NWA. Well, I was not, but I was in his ear about it, yes. signing it. I yes. didn't bring it to him, but I was right. definitely pushing because he goes, you really were a big influence on us signing <laughs> it or whatever. 
So uh, when the record came out, they put me in the thank yous. We used to go to the video shoots, you know, for the videos. My kids were little kids dancing in their videos. My partner and I were dancing in the back of some of those videos, you know. Right. And then later on, they were going to the Snoop videos and all that. But yeah, um, yeah we were very in, involved. And then uh, my boys would uh, sometimes watch Eric's kids because... Uh, uh, Derek, he was a real young boy at the time. And we became really close with Eric's woman too, Easy's woman right. at the time, Joyce. Yes. And she's on that record too, straight out of Compton. Yes. And, you know, Eric, your breast smells, you know, all that. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, my kids would kind of watch his kids when he would uh, go off. He had to do something, you know, God knows what. But. You, know, you know, sometimes, Violet, I, I shamefully admit this. And I said this to my son. I said, because um, he asked me about a rapper. Uh, 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 I call them social media or SoundCloud rappers today. Mm -hmm. Some of these guys I've never heard of, but talking to Greedy Greg, I asked him, how much do you, do you think these guys are making a show? Oh, they're making about 50 grand. Now, I've never heard of these guys. And he says, they don't even have a song on the radio. Okay. So the other day, my son asked me, what do you think about this artist? And I said, mijo, I said, I never heard of the dude. So he names another one. Never heard of the dude. Well, Daddy, you call yourself a DJ and a producer and, and, and a, a, a Rodian radio host and you don't know none of these guys? And I was like, look, and this is the shameful part. I said, look, I on purpose choose not to listen to this new generation rap. Hmm. Now, some people say, well, you're just a hater. No, I just choose not to. I tried, Violet. I really did. And maybe I'm just one of them old dudes that is just stuck back there mm -hmm. because that music changed my life. Yeah. You know, and I I saw hip hop going like this. And then when I thought it got to this new generation, people can differ. That's fine. I thought it went like this. I didn't like it. I I, I still don't like this new generation of rap. Um, I, I miss the old days. I, I really do. Uh, I love the 80s, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I, I have a Planet Rock story. I remember when I first got Planet Rock, I loved that damn song so damn much. My brother had one turntable and uh, I used to bump the shit out of that song, yep. especially in the morning. I would get up on my butt huggers, <laughs> play that song and start practicing my popping moves in front of the mirror. I turn around and my mom's watching me there the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, that's my Planet Rock story. So I didn't do that anymore. Wow. But um, I, I just love that the whole era of music. I love my favorite rapper. When people ask me, okay, Tone, who's your favorite rapper? So look, dude, you ain't got to twist my arm. I like KRS-One and I like uh, Rakim. I say this and, and I won't back down from, I said, it doesn't get any more hip hop than that, than those two guys. And I, of course I love Public Enemy. You know, I was raised on East Coast rap. Mm -hmm. I love the NWAs. I love all of these groups from out here. Yeah. Ice T's, a lot, one guy that nobody really mentions, I was raised also on King T, yeah, uh, Mix Master so Spade, good. Toddy T, and the producer DJ Poo. They, uh, King T lived up in the same apartment building that Ice T lived in, you know? So mm -hmm. I was up there at their house, some at their apartment sometimes. You right. Know? I remember when I first saw um, Ice T, uh, I don't know if you remember, it was called the LA Street Scene mm -hmm. I don't, uh, in the 80s. And I remember I kept looking at Ice T like this and he finally noticed. And uh, um, I just kept looking at him and he goes like, what's up? And I was like, hey man, uh, do you mind if I just like uh, shake your hand? And he said, yeah, you a fan? And I was like, hell yeah, bro. It's like, you're like, like God, bro. Yeah. You know? And he was like, it's cool, man. It's cool, man. And I was just shaking his hand, but it meant everything to me. You know, when I met Dre, 
I was a fan of the world-class wrecking crew. To me, it just wasn't the wrecking crew. It was the world-class yeah. wrecking crew. And I didn't know that he was broke, you know, living at Ginger's house. But that didn't matter to me. I loved his talent. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what I what I looked up to, you know. Today, Violet, and again, this is just me, I just don't see it today. And that's why I kind of just choose to press mute on today's music. Mm -hmm. So, uh, is there anything today that that you like um you know i hear certain people you know there's a guy that i really like out of canada named johnny o'rourke that i just love him so much but he kind of has an old school sound to him uh -huh. a little bit with some of his music uh -huh. but this guy he can really spit he tells a good story you know, uh, Tech Nine is not new, but he still appeals to young kids, and I yes. love Tech. I, I I worked with Strange Music. Yes, we're, we're going to get into that. Okay, but I want to ask you um, about. Um, it was just at the tip of my tongue. Years ago, you shared with me a story on how, uh, and and I the reason why I want you to share this story is because um, I believe that many people. It's a blessing to have today's technology. Believe me, I don't knock that. But I want people to learn from these old stories how you met MC Hammer. If you remember selling uh, records out of the trunk sure. of his car. Can you share that with us, please? Yeah. Uh, I was at my office. We were in Torrance, California. And um, I got a call that uh, <clears throat> this guy wanted to come up and meet me. So he came to my office. Um and he introduced himself as Kirk. Was his, he told me his name was Kirk. And so he told me he had some music and he wanted me to hear it. So I put on his, he had some 12 inch singles that he had brought. And I think it was Ringham and, and whatever, The Thrill is Gone. It used the bass on, the bass of B.B. Uh, King's The Thrill is Gone. And uh, he played those two songs and I was like, okay. You know, pretty good or whatever. Yeah. But, it, you know, it didn't like knock me out or anything, you know. And he was from the Bay Area, from Oakland. And he told me that he was really starting to pop in the Bay and that sort of thing. So uh, he wanted to sell some records to me out of his car. So we didn't really, I couldn't really do that. My company does, didn't allow me to really do that too much. But every once in a while, I would beg and say, oh, let me just get some from this guy. He drove all the way or whatever. And so I got some from him. And um, I put it in the Bay Area, in those Bay Area stores, because I figured he's from the bay yes. that's where it would sell i used to always uh give everybody a shot pretty much yes. uh because i always figured there's somewhere there's somewhere for everybody that this would sell yes even as, if it's in their hometown and their cousins and their homies and the mom and mom's coming and buying it or something it would sell there yes so i would give people a shot and put it in their hometown and then as it grew i could move it around you know to yes. more stores so with him we put it in the bay and it started selling so he started, and he owned Troop Clothing at the time. So hmm. he was already, you know, involved with uh, product, you know, with uh, gear. And he had been a, a ball, a bat boy or whatever, or water boy or whatever you call it right, for, the, right. for the Oakland A's. Okay. So people really knew him. And the way that he got that is they saw him dancing in the parking lot of the games and the owner caught he caught the attention of the owner and the owner said oh my gosh you look like uh 
hammer, you know, the baseball player or whatever. Yeah. So he goes, wow, we're going to take you in. And he took him under his wing, gave him that job as bat boy or whatever. And then he would dance and stuff and people really loved him. He had a big personality. Yes. And when he was in my office, he had a huge personality. And that's the one thing that attracted me to him more than his music. He was very sure that he was going to make it. Like very sure, yes. like straight up, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be the biggest thing and all this. And I was like, calm down, boy. You do know who yeah. comes in here? People that are the biggest thing, you know, like, wow. So so um, I started selling his records in the Bay and then he started doing in stores and he would fly me in for the in stores because he wanted me to be there and see it. Wow. So we go in and maybe there's 50, 75 people do the in store. He signs autographs. He's dancing in the store, a lot of commotion <laughs> with his whole entourage and all that. Next time he does one, there's a few hundred people. Next time he does one, there's like 500 people. So pretty soon, you know, we were the only chain that had this guy on our charts. We were selling it like crazy. Wow. So people were calling and saying, who is this guy that's ending up on your charts that we've never heard of before? I go, oh, he's just a guy from the Bay, MC Hammer. So this girl that worked with me at Warehouse, she went off to do A&R somewhere. She went to... Um, uh, she went to Hollywood Records, okay, and that's where I brought the high seat to her yes. when she was at Hollywood yes. Records. For, so, for those Violet that may not know what an A and R is, can you explain? It's artist repertoire. So, um, an A and R person will find an artist, listen to the music, bring it into the label to possibly get a deal, and then sometimes they'll be the one that'll be involved in kind of putting the project together too, yes, okay. you know, like choosing songs, producers, things like that. So um, uh, when she left Hollywood Records, she went over to, oh, wait, she went to Capitol Records first. That's right. So she goes over to Capitol Records and she called me up and she goes, hey, she goes, I'm looking for something that's really hot and you always have hot new artists coming through your office. Do you got anything? I said, sure. I got this guy named MC Hammer. So she goes, really? She goes, what, what's going on with him? And I go, well, have you noticed our charts? I go, he's really selling. So she goes, send it to me. So I call him up and I was still calling him Kirk. You know, that's his middle name, by the way. So I said, Kirk, do you, this lady at Capitol Records, she's asking for your your music, should I send it to her? He goes, yeah, we're about ready to want to do something big. Yeah, go ahead. So I send her the music. She listens to it. She calls me back and she says, wow. She goes, this is really not very good. And I was like, well, I said, you know what? I said, you might not like it. Right. And I said, I might not like all of it too. I go, but the, it's selling and it's striking a chord in the Bay Area. This guy's really moving units for us. So I said, and besides... You don't have to like it. I don't have to like it. It's for the audience, yes. the customers. Yes. I said, if I only bought what I liked, there wouldn't be very many records coming through here. Believe me. You know, I said, I have to buy for the masses, you know? Yes. So uh, she goes, well, let me give it to the urban department or whatever. I'll hand it over to them, you know? Because she, she said to me, honestly, she said... I want to sign the next Madonna, the next Bobby Brown. She goes, you got stuff like that, you know? And I was like, well, who wouldn't want to sign those yeah. big acts or whatever? But I said, this guy, I'm telling you, there's something about him. And when you meet him, he's so determined, you're going to see that this guy's going to make it. 
So she gave it over to the urban department. He ended up getting a meeting with them and then he got a big deal. And I think it, I think it was like two million or something. It was wow. a big deal that he got. Wow. So then, and he was very sure of himself in front of them too. He sold himself to them. Of course, I mean, yeah. he really sold it. And so um, he said, I'm gonna be the biggest rapper of all time. And so they were kind of joking around with him and they go, well, if that happens, we'll get you a brand new Testarossa car, you know? And he was like, I'm telling you, I'm going to be. And they go, we guarantee you, you that happens. Anyway, uh, go, going forward, he calls me up and he says, hey, you want to come down to Capitol Records? They're going to present me with my Testarossa car today because he had, um, you know, you can't touch this and yes, all that. Yes, and that record yes. just went crazy. And he was the first diamond artist, uh, hip uh, diamond rap artist. Now explain diamond for those that may oh, not I'm, know. I'm sorry. Uh, so a platinum artist sells a million. A uh, diamond artist sells 10 million records. So wow. um, he was the first one that went to 10 million as a rap artist, you know. So you know what's funny, Violet, that a lot of people say, oh, that fool's a sellout. That fool's whack. Somebody bought them records. Oh, everybody was buying the records at the time, you know, yeah. and those videos that he was releasing was big time. Right. Everybody was doing the dances. Yes. They were yes. wearing the, he gave me kazals like he wore. I had the kazals. He, uh, he was totally, you know, just always um, so good to me, you know, and um he would invite me to his big shows. He would call me up and say, Violet, I just sold out the biggest arena in the world in Japan and we sold out in seven minutes, man. Stuff like that, you know? Or he would say, hey, I'm gonna be with Michael Jackson. You know, we're gonna be doing this thing where I'm gonna be dancing against him for the glove. And I said, hold up, no, that is not what you should be doing. Right, you know, right, like right, I, right. I really was uh, adamant about that, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of people around him right, told him the same right. thing. But, you know, he had big ambitions all the time, and he made it, man. He right. really made it. Well, we're going to go to break, Violet. I mean, there's so much that we can talk about because you have so much history, and it's impossible to talk about all of it in one interview. Mm -hmm. But I, I tell these kids today that if you have a dream, to pursue it. You yep. know, to pursue it, okay? Um so that's what I encourage everyone to pursue your dreams. Um, once again, we're going to go to a break. Uh, I'm just blown away from what I'm hearing today. Um, it's a blessing and an honor to have Violet Brown here. Uh, once again, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Rodeo Mixtape documentary that just dropped on Monday. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Steve Yano. And uh, for those that are trying to text me right now, listen to my music, I'm telling you again, Go to Rhodium Radio Gmail. All your comments, uh, your content, your uh, your music, send it all there. I'm not going to read your messages. I'm not trying to be mean. So uh, we'll be back after this with more Violet Brown. Call somebody. Yo, everybody. Thank you. Welcome back once again. It's uh, I wish we had three more hours, you know, uh, because there's so much that... It's like being in a field and digging up treasures, talking to Violet Brown. That's the way I feel. Uh, and it's a truly an honor and a pleasure to have her here. Without further ado, so that we don't waste any more time, we're going to jump right back into it. Um, now, Violet, you're working at, at the warehouse, the record mm -hmm. store, the warehouse. Mm -hmm. How many 
uh, what would you say, change locations that you guys have at that time? Gosh. Because uh, they were everywhere. At one point, I think there were 3,000, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, uh, we constantly were growing. Yes, yeah. yes. And and you were, if you were the head buyer for hip-hop? Yeah, urban, okay. the urban buyer. And, uh, and when I started, it was the black music buyer. The, wow. Because I bought, it was called black music. Right. So, and then uh, some magazines started changing and calling it urban urban music and then it went to urban okay so. now um how many years did you work there buying for them oh as a buyer uh maybe like 20 years or something like that i was with them like 35 years something 30 some years okay yeah now i remember um i was in the studio uh, with a steve yano scanning studio in the city of alhambra and we were talking, and then you asked me about a certain artist. I remember you asked me. I don't know if you do, but let me try to refresh your memory. You said, Tony, do you know a guy named Little Rob? That's what you had asked me. And I said, you know, Violet, I worked with him. I did like two songs on, on a Lawless album. I said, uh, I don't really know him. She goes, maybe you could try to get a hold of him because I really sell a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Okay. I bring him up because the topic that comes up a lot today is about chicano rap mm -hmm. okay when you were there at the warehouse do you remember do you recall uh maybe possibly any chicano rappers that were really selling during that time when you were there well little rob was selling to death capone was selling big time um uh lighter shade of brown um okay. there were several that started popping up and uh but there were a lot of little guys too that that were selling in pockets okay you know uh i bought all of that stuff so um we were like the only chain sometimes they would say oh the market share for your chain is like 90 percent market share how is this happening because wow. i was like the only one really buying it and putting it in the stores you know right. and we even had uh i started doing a promotion with the pocos paralocos uh yes. radio show and um I even had a Pocos Paralocos section in my store where we would put the stuff up on an end cap and display it. And, you know, usually those displays, that was stuff for, that was like Madonna and Queen and, you know, whoever else, you know, yes. Michael Jackson. And here I had this end cap that was all Chicano rap, you know. Right, and right. Uh, so we were selling it pretty big. There's three labels. I don't know if they're, I want to call them labels or groups if you will um there's high power which is if i'm correct capone's label yeah. then there's um low profile from san diego they're the ones that had, had little rob mm -hmm. and then there's a uh, uh mr d uh southland i think they're called southland gangsters if i'm or southland entertainment i don't know if you remember any of those during that time other than little rob which you had mentioned you know what i don't i didn't deal much with labels back okay. then it was artist more artist, with okay. chicano rap and it came from the distributors whoever was bringing it in and usually it was an independent distributor okay. you know uh southwest wholesale or um some indie distributor that okay. would have them i mean it wasn't easy to find that stuff you right, know it was right. at swap meets and it was in my stores but because we were on SoundScan. You know, we were reporting the sales of this stuff, you know, from the barcode on there. Right. So, um, 
you know, basically, I don't know who else was carried. I don't think it was carried at very many other places. Right, right. Um, th this is a question coming from me, and I've always wondered this. Other than possibly a Cypress Hill, uh, a Fat Joe, Big Pun, and those guys, why do you believe, Violet, and maybe I'm wrong, why hasn't there been a Chicano rapper that has ever made it, if you will, to the stature of a Snoop Dogg, Game, DJ Quick, you know? Well, it it was about radio back then, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let them in on radio. There was yeah. well, they weren't really making radio songs either. The first guy that really made a gigantic radio song, you know, was Kid Frost. You know, and uh, I remember when that record came out. I kind of went crazy on that record too. I was like, yeah. oh my God, this is too much. You know, like I remember getting the promo of it before it was out, taking it home. And I played it for a friend of mine who started Community Youth Gang Services, Marianne Diaz Pardon. And uh, she was like, man, this song is just, it's incredible. And so um, I remember she said, I'm doing a concert in a park in Lenox. Do you think that he would come and play in the park? Hmm. And I said, well, maybe I go, but are you going to get this cleared in Linux to have a rap, a free rap concert in right. the park, you know? And so she got it cleared and the whole, everybody thought that there was going to be shootings there and craziness. He, he rocked it right there in the park in Linux and nobody <laughs> uh, bothered. There was no fights or anything. They were seeing like this. He was a rap star when that song came yes. out, you know? So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, now, I, I'm I'm trying to pick my questions, Violet. Oh, I and have Mellow Man Ace too. Mellow uh, Man Ace was another yeah, huge one. Oh my one, gosh. Huge one. Uh, it seems like those two guys just were climbing up the charts. Yeah. And, and then he opened the door for Cypress Hill, really. Yes. You know, Mellow. So. Yes. Yeah. And after that, I have to say, you know, Lighter Shade of Brown was climbing up the charts yeah. as well. Then here comes Proper Those, but I don't feel that it ever kicked open the doors after that. Right. I, I just felt like it just stayed, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, uh, it, again, it's all about those catchy radio songs and that's why Pitbull really yes. came up to where he's at, you know, it's all about those crazy club bangers, you know, and true. radio songs. True, true, yeah. uh, Today I talk to people and here's what they tell me. Well, if I don't hear it in the in a strip club, it ain't gonna be banging, you know, so. Yeah, strip clubs, they played stuff first, you know, a lot yeah. of times. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now, I, I have to jump around because of time, because I, I, I'm going to have to invite you back, so there will be a Violet Part 2, okay? okay? But now, in today's generation, we look at today's music, everything's streamed. You know, you look at social media, somebody will drop an album on all platforms, that's what you see, mm -hmm. okay, on all platforms. From what you know of um, uh, via down or streams whether it be um itunes or uh, uh spotify etc can a rapper today really make money off of streams you know i 
I, they're not going to make a lot of money off st streams, but if they're not making the money off streams, you got to look at it a different way. If they're getting a lot of streams, then that means people are finding out about them, which means they can go do shows, Good, which means yes. they can sell merch, you know? So not really making a ton of money off the streams, but the doors that it opens for them, you know, and then possibly getting the music licensed in films, you know, like all the movies you go see nowadays all these rap songs are in movies, yes. you know? Uh, yes. So it opens the door big time for them, you know? And the great thing about streaming and uh, and the digital music now is, you know, although we don't have record stores anymore, it's basically everybody, if you have a phone in your pocket yes. or if you have a computer, you have a record store because you can always find music. Yes. Back yes. in the day, you couldn't uh, get your music exposed in other countries so easily. You know, right. nowadays, you know, you can be anywhere and listen to music in another country or hear a guy in, you know, another country, another part of the U.S. or whatever. So although there's no record stores, it's like 24-7 yes. record stores. As long as you have that phone or whatever, you right. can always find new music, you right. know. So it's pretty easy nowadays to... Here's a, a a DJ question, okay? I was talking to Greedy Greg, okay, uh, a couple of days ago, and he tells me, you know what I read the other day, Tone? He said that this was for 2019, and I guess this must have been an old issue, that vinyl was going to outsell CDs this year, okay? Of course, there's not really too much vinyl or CDs out, but that was the stat, okay? Mm -hmm. And I said, really? And he goes, yes. Now... Do you think, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, do you think that vinyl records will ever make a comeback or do you think that's a thing of the past? Well, everybody talks like it's making a comeback now. Right. But, and you see them in some weird stores, urban outfitters and clothing stores will have a vinyl, a little vinyl section or whatever. Right. But, you know, it's not selling like CDs used right. to sell, you right. know, where a whole skid of product would come in on a pallet, you know, and just blow off like that. It's not <laughs> like that, you know. So right. uh, I don't know. It seems like it seems like it's kind of peaked maybe again. But right. I don't know. You right. know, like I when I was spinning, I only spun vinyl and I love vinyl so much, you know, right. but, you know, it's so much easier with it was so much easier with cds and then of course now you have a dj that shows up and goes oh i'm gonna do this club tonight here's my phone or here's my laptop and yeah that's it yeah you know you're right you're right um now here's a toughie here's a tough one maybe a tough one maybe not is there an artist today a rap artist today that you could think of that will still be relevant or will still be remembered 25 years from now well, I think the NWA might. You okay, know? no, I'm talking uh, a rap, a new rapper. Oh, a new rap artist today. Maybe Kendrick Lamar. Maybe Th that's what I, I was mean, thinking about. You know, um, just because of the fame, like winning the awards that he's won and all that, and his records are great. I mean, you know, so maybe him. Okay. You know, I don't know, like. I can't really say <laughs> it's going to be so hard because now kids that are buying uh, rappers, I mean, are buying new music, they know the songs. They don't really identify so much with 
the artist right. too much. It's always about songs because they have no, um, uh, their attention span is like this, you know, they're on to the next so fast. Right. So it's kind of hard for a rapper to come out and become a big star now, you know? Right. Um, I, I was blown away by this. Um, I want to say almost two years ago, I DJ'd a private party and the guy who hired me, I didn't want to do it. And I said, look, I don't think your private party no more. I don't think your house party no more. I'll do your nightclubs and maybe concerts. That's it. You know, I'm that kind of DJ. And he, he offered me so much money. So I said, yes. And I took it. And I remember he just said, look, in the very beginning, the first hour, just play some old school shit. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. I said, all right, cool, whatever. So I played everything, like from Madonna to uh, uh, Janet Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, Sheila E., you know, and then later on during the night, I kind of mixed in a Britney Spears song because it was that type of crowd. Okay. Yeah. This is about two years ago. Some girl comes up to me. She says, Oh, could you not play so much old school anymore? It's weird that they considered, or well, she did, a Britney Spears song like old school. And I'm thinking, it's wild that, that gener this generation sees a Britney Spears like an old school. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, when he told me old school, the first thing that came to my mind was like, you know, Humpty Dance, Fly well, Girl. You know, yeah, now Britney is her mom's music, you know, yeah. kids, you know, right. they're on to Billie Eilish and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Okay, uh, now, back to the Rhodium Swamp Meet. Um, when you first heard my mixtapes, because I, I, I met you through Steve, mm -hmm. and Every time I saw you at the Swamp Meet, I always remember that you were always so kind to me. You would always talk to me. And you would always pat me in the back and say, Tony, when you blow up, are you still going to be humble? <laughs> and I was like, Vale, I will never change. And we're still here today. And you haven't changed. I I'm thankful for that, you know. And, uh, and I'm thankful for your friendship. And I, when you used to leave, I used to always tell Steve, man, that's a nice lady. Who is that? <laughs> you know, and he goes like, you want to be friends with her? <laughs> and I was like, that's a nice lady. But I'm glad I met you as the nice lady from the rhodium and not for what you did because uh, I don't like when people try to befriend people because of who they are. Oh, or, gosh, yeah. You know, and I'm sure you've had that. Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know. People would show up in my office, friends of mine would say, or people I knew in the business, oh, I'm going to drop by and see you today. They would show up in my office with somebody with them all the time. It yeah. would always be somebody with them. And uh, acting like I didn't know what was up, <laughs> I knew that they were getting paid to bring that person in front of me, which was ridiculous because anybody could have come and seen me for free. That person could have called me up yeah. and said, hey, I want to come up and meet you. And, I and they would have a meeting with me because many artists did that. That's how I met Tech 9 and Travis from Strange Music. They just came to right. see me at the office. A lot of big artists, you know. But uh, I would always say to them, you know, I would have the meeting and then I would say, you know what, uh, you know, privately with them, I'd say, I know what's up. How much money did you get from this person to come and have this meeting today? What, what, what? No, no. And I said, come on. <laughs> you know, every time you come here, you got somebody and they just happen to have some new project or something. I'd say, don't do that. You right. know, don't be taking money just bring them up here but don't take money from them or else i'm going to start calling you out in front of these people good you know good that's, so that's good yeah. reminds me of me ah. now when 
when was it or how did it come about that Steve started telling you about what we were doing as far as uh, the I'm Not Your Puppet was on a mixtape and then sitting in the park because you had uh, played a major role in us getting our record deal with Hollywood Records. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how, how did that come about? Did he say, did he ever say, you know, we're working on something or? Um, yeah. And I was hearing the stuff, you know, right. on the tapes, you okay. know, and it sounded great. You know, Crawford sounded a lot like Easy, you know. A lot so of people, people said were thinking it was Easy E for a minute, especially since Easy was involved with those, you know. But then when you met Crawford and you heard him talk, <laughs> He just sounded like Eric, you know, and, but he was good, you know, and you were putting together really good tracks for him, you know, and, um, uh, the same girl that was over at Capitol Records that the hammer situation had gone over to do A&R for Hollywood Records. Hollywood Records was actually owned by, uh, Disney. Uh, I worked for them for a while, and my check had a little Mick, Mickey Mouse <laughs> on it, you know. So um, she said she was looking for some rap music and all that. Did I know of anything again, you know? And she actually tried to hire me uh, to do head of Urban A and R at Hollywood Records, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of where the conversation came up about uh, Steve and you know you guys. So um, she heard it, and because. She probably loved it a lot because it did sound like Eric, you know. So, but she was like, man, this stuff is really, it's kind of nasty. You know, I don't know if uh, Disney's going to go for it, but you know what? Everything's nasty nowadays. We got to like do it. We got to do it, you know. So I remember her um, uh, talking to me and saying, okay, everything's cool, except for they have to now change the lyrics. They want the lyrics changed. And what had happened is, I think that you guys changed the lyrics on the lyric sheet on that paper. you handed in on paper, but didn't really change it. And the record came out. Yes. Like the bosses, the big people didn't listen right. to this and hear the, the content. Right. You know, you guys got away with it, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, um, you know, you guys just t- started blowing up over there, you know, in Hollywood. I was so, I was so excited for all of you and for Steve and yes, yeah. Yes. Uh, no, you know what? It's, um, and I'm thankful that you were a part of it. Um, you know, it, it's it, one thing that I always told Steve, you know what? Um, Violet is just one of those friends that, uh, you meet once in a lifetime. And I truly, truly mean that because even, like I said, I was 19 years old. I'm 51 years old now. And I can still pick up the phone and call you to say, how you doing, you know? And that's an awesome, awesome uh, friendship, if you will. You know, now um, you're wearing an NWA sweater. And a couple of times I looked at Eric, easy, okay? There's two artists that when they passed, I'll be honest, it really, really did hurt me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to ask you, if you remember, or do you recall where you were when you first heard that Easy E had passed away? Yeah, I was on. It was uh, I was on. Uh, I was in Vegas for my birthday. It was March twenty sixth, my birthday, and he died. Wow. So yeah. Yeah. When I so um, it was so sad to me, you yes. know, because we knew that he was sick, right. but we didn't know like sick like gonna die you know right now or whatever you know we heard it was bad or whatever but yeah that was tough yeah it was was really tough i remember uh and i shared a story on a previous uh show that we had just pulled up to steve's studio 
and they had announced it. Theo had announced it, and then he plays uh, Boys in the Hood. Yeah. And I told my friend who was driving, just go inside. And I'll be honest, I, I really did cry because yeah. I, I remember him walking through my living room, in, in, into my room, grabbing a crate of records, you know, flipping it up, and then writing 88 Boom and Bass, Get Busy with Easy and Tony A on the 12 Techniques. See, it's a steal, and Steve is promoting them. Uh, uh, dope ass shit by the Wizard at the Rodeum. And I still see him, yeah. you know, and then he says it, and then he did a couple of other tapes. And, you know, uh, I mean, through the years, you know, um, I was there for all his videos and I, I always took, I would take a picture with him all the time. So I had so many different pictures with him. We went to Disneyland with him one time. And I remember I have a picture of him with uh, the Keystone cop from Disneyland. <laughs> and uh, he had his video camera that day. And anybody that was coming up and asking for his autograph, which he loved that. He was like the Pied Piper, you know. Yes. Two or three kids would notice him. Then there's like 50 kids following us around Disneyland. And he loved that, you know. And anybody that would ask him for a picture or whatever, he would say, okay, let me get you on my video. So he was taking videos that day. And uh, this cop, the Keystone cop comes by and I said, hey, you should take your picture with him. And he goes, why do I want to get my picture with him? And I said, Keystone cop, fuck the police. You need your picture with him. And so he went up and he goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes, hey, let's take a picture. And so he was like this. So I got that picture of him wow. at Disneyland. Wow. And uh, that videotape was, act he had a, a Aerostar van and somebody broke in and stole the camera stole and the, from wow. that whole day and everything. But that wow. was that was for one of his kids' birthday that we wow. were there. And I remember we shared a story together on uh i think it was a your birthday at the anaheim celebrity theater yep those were awesome ass shows oh there. that was so good man they said uh we're gonna have a birthday party for you at the show and it was at the yeah in anaheim, orange county yes and um backstage they had a bunch of chicken they had a, a cake and all that and I guess Layla was backstage, their security guy. And while the show was going on, he was just eating, grubbing on all the food. <laughs> so I think things were mostly gone when it was over with. Yeah. But it was so cool because they were shouting out happy birthday to me from the stage, you know, NWA shouting me out, oh, right. we're, it's Violet's birthday party tonight and all this stuff. So it made me feel really good, you know? Wow, that's yeah. awesome. You know, what made that stage so unique because it was right in the middle of the audience. You had to run through the audience so the fans actually got to touch the artist yep. and the stage would turn around real slow. Yeah, those were awesome. The, the day that I went, it was actually the first time I actually ever met Jerry. Mm -hmm. And I tripped out how tall he was. You know, yeah. Jerry was tall dude, black trench coat. You know, he, he opened the door, it's time to go. Yeah. You know, and uh, I remember when they went up there and uh, it was Ren and Dre and then Cube came out and then finally Easy. Uh, came out and the whole crowd was yelling, we want easy. It, it was electric. It was electric. It, it, it was it was just amazing. I remember uh, the DOC performed there that day. Uh, his, he only had a single out, the Funky Enough. Uh -huh. Then uh, I, I remember King T was uh, performing. He had a spade. So I got to see Mixed Master Spade live on stage. Pooh was on the drum and DJ Aladdin was on the turntables cutting it up. Mm -hmm. NWA came next and then Ice T came on pushing his uh, album power yeah it, it that was just yeah that yeah. could have been a pay-per-view show oh yeah 
And I used to always tell them we need to do these on pay-per-view because venues started not wanting to do rap shows. Right. So I used to say pay-per-view, (laughs) pay-per-view, and they wouldn't listen to me. And I was like, kept shouting, we got to do pay-per-view. I said, why wouldn't you? And they were afraid or they thought people wouldn't watch. And I said, are you kidding? Some kid in Idaho, they will never see this concert, but they could turn it on on their TV in their yeah. house and watch it. I'm telling you, it would be huge pay-per-view. Huge. But they never wanted yeah. to do that, you know? Again, Violet, I know we're going to have to do another one because there's just so much to cover um, I want to read something, uh, maybe one or two quotes. This was a book, uh, or should I say a magazine, Urban Network uh, Warehouse magazine that was given, and it says, A Salute to Violet Brown. And this was a, a, a magazine that was given a tribute to you yeah. for working there. And uh, there's just so many pictures and so many quotes of people that uh, on paying homage to, to Violet Brown. Like, I'll just read one or two. And this is from Clive Davis, CEO, J Records. And it says, Violet has has had a special influence on today's music industry throughout her 25 years. Her great love for music and her talented artists have truly established her as a major tastemaker. She has had my ear and I've always been eager for her input, reaction, and advice. I salute her for a much-deserved tribute and I wish her much joy for filming for the futures, Clive Davis. Uh, let me turn the page here, not to take too much time, but uh, let me read one from uh, Tina Marie. Lady T, I am pleased to be giving you a quote regarding Violet. I, I feel she is one of the most important people in the industry. Her main attribute is her integrity. It carries over in all that she does at work with uh, at work with friends. If more people were like her, the industry would be a better place. Violet is dear to me, and I congratulate her on her past, present, and future accomplishments. Thanks for being a friend, Lady T. And I can keep going on. There's E-40 quotes. There's uh, uh, Busta Rhymes. There's uh, Warren G quotes. There's Mac-10 quotes. And again, I... I guess Will I Am in there. Yes. I met him when he was 15, and yeah. And uh, I want to show the picture, if possible... Of the picture that you took with uh, Aaliyah. Here it is right here. And how long before was it? That that was uh, about a week before she was killed. Okay. Uh Okay. And once again, this is uh, is the collector's edition. And she's not selling or giving it away. (laughs) I don't even have it. But this will probably be one day in a a museum, hip-hop museum. So, um, once again, Violet, it's been a truly honor and a pleasure uh, to have you here, you know, I remember you introducing me to Tina Marie, mm. and to me that was one of the highlights of my career to be able to work with her in the studio. Usually, when we mic up a rapper, we usually tell him to go ahead and spit, man. Let us get some levels. Yeah, we're compressing, you know, adding a little EQ, you know, whatever. It was hard for me to do that for her because when she started singing and warming up. It was just, I was just listening and I was telling people, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Oh my God. I'm not going to lie to you. She must have been in there for at least 30 minutes warming up. Are you guys ready? And we're thinking to ourselves, shit, we were done, you know, (laughs) but these were just all warmups. And she goes, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready yet. And I was like, okay, let us know when you're ready. Okay. Let me have a little bit more tea. She had some tea. 
Let's go. But to me, it was just like a freaking concert. That night uh, that we were there, we were in the parking lot of that studio. And I remember it was really like late, like yeah. one, two in the morning, something like that. And we were sitting outside while you guys were doing something in there. And we were in the car. And Tina was in the back seat of our car. And I'm in the passenger seat. And Carla's in the driver's seat, my partner. And... Uh, one of Tina's songs came on the radio because it was like a, you know, some quiet storm type music or right. whatever. And and her song came on the radio and I was like, oh my God, Tina's song is on the radio. How weird. <laughs> and then Tina comes up on the back of the seat like this, leans forward and Carla's here, I'm there. And she starts singing along with her record on the radio and my ears like right here, right? And I was like, is this really happening that she is singing with her song on the radio? And it was just so beautiful. And yes. yeah, she's yes. so beautiful. Yes. She's yes. a beautiful person. She used to go sing happy birthday for my friends, you know, take, oh, my friend's having a birthday. Uh, you want, she go, want me to go sing happy birthday? And then she would go over there, sing happy birthday, and then go off about her business. She was just so cool. You, you know, one thing that really stood out to me about her other than her incredible voice when I first met her, I didn't realize how tiny she was. Now, yeah. I know I'm a tall guy. Really tiny. But when I saw her, I was I, I couldn't believe it, that such a powerful voice came out of that tiny woman. Yeah. You know, yeah. amazing, amazing. She'll never be forgotten. So once again, thank you for introducing me to her, yeah. you know, for that awesome experience. But we run out of time. Um I want to say, Violet, that I would love to bring you back. So sometime next year, uh, we'll have to come, invite you back uh, to have a Violet Part 2. Yeah, there's a whole you know? lot of stuff I could say, a yes. whole lot more. So Yes, but we, we will. And that that was just to, you know how they said, to wet your lips, wet your ears, okay? Uh, uh, for you guys to tune in uh, to Rodeo Radio, we will have Violet back. And there's a lot more stories to share. Uh, but once again... I want to remind you that the Rodium Mixtape Documixery dropped on Monday. You can order it at documixery.com. And this is in memory of Steve Yano, uh, who was a huge cornerstone to West Coast uh, hip-hop. Uh, he's a major contributor. So I hope that you guys go and you guys support it and uh, learn some West Coast hip-hop history. Uh, once again, uh, Rodium Radio Gmail. If you guys have anybody you guys want to invite... Any music, any questions, send them there. Please do not DM me or do not uh, message me. Send them all to the email, rodeonradio at gmail.com. Um, other than that, um, our next guest will be, uh, uh, you have to look on my Facebook and on my Instagram to find out tomorrow morning who my next guest is. Uh, um, hilarious dude. You don't want to miss it. The dude is hilarious. Uh, I love him. We've been friends for the longest time and i guarantee you he'll make you guys laugh especially with his face okay you'll know what i mean when you see the the trailer tomorrow uh for rodeo radio next week so once again violet um if there is there anything any shout outs anything you would like to say to anyone you can say it now and uh, yeah, I want to shout out uh, my friends over at No Limit Sports and Fitness. That's a gym in Signal Hill, and I've been uh, hanging with them for the last few years, uh, along with doing music, but I've enjoyed working in the fitness industry, too. So I want to give a shout out to all of them. Yes, yeah. yes. And once again, there is so much that some people can, you know, message me. How come you didn't ask this? How come you... Because I had so much to ask. I could not have fit it in in this these two-hour interviews. So 
once again, she will be back. And uh, if you have any questions for her next time, email them and I will do my best to get those questions to her. So once again, thank everybody for tuning in. I like to give credit where credit is due. Once again, I'd like to thank, thank John Elkins, John motherfucking Elkins for the this. Man. Because if it wasn't for him, this wouldn't be made possible along with DG, Daniel Jones, DG Media Clips, uh, Boomer, Boomer did it, Remedy Yard, uh, Roger Mera, Roger Live, uh, Wiz, Wiz One, uh, Kerry Pujita, South Bay Drones. This is my, my team. These are the people that helped me uh, uh, bring this to fruition. So once again, I'd like to thank them. Uh, Epidemic for rolling through. Uh, Sandy Pants and my boy Misfit is in the building. So much love, much respect to them. And thank everybody for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Violet, once again. Yeah.